The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading this morning is from sections of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And God saw that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said, the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to to this man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me, who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put anonymity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, to, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the kids' sign, the kids' zone sign. Thanks, John and Jamie. If you would keep your app open, please, or your Bibles open, and you can 
follow along with me as we study through this passage. We are starting a new sermon series today, and we're very excited about it. It's called Dwell, and it's our Advent series. The reason that we've entitled it Dwell is because there's a sense in which the entire Bible is a study of the proximity of God to His people. That you'd think God would run off at the thought of or sight of His children, but God keeps drawing closer and closer and closer. And what comfort that is for us. In fact, for this Advent series, we've commissioned four paintings to be painted. The first one is up here, and as you can see, this is uh, Adam and Eve as they're leaving the garden, and yet God's presence goes with them, covering them. And we're going to talk about that this morning, what it looks like for God to dwell near people who have problems. We're going to put these up each week so that you can experience this along with us, and we invite you to do that. There's a further description in the app, and if you go on Instagram and look at, look at our story, it'll be the, the picture of this painting, and it'll be a description of it as well. But the question that I have for you is, what does it mean for God to be near? You know the irony of this, right? You know the fact that when we do anything wrong, when we give in to soothing ourselves in a way that we're not supposed to soothe ourselves, when we give in to shouting at a little one because they're driving you insane, when we give out a give in to a snarky remark to our spouse to hurt them, to get them off our back, we immediately sense this distance from others and from God. And the testimony of the Bible is that no matter how far you run from God, God will stay near to you. What is making you feel far from God now? Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank You and I praise You for Your Word and Your Holy Spirit. And I ask by your kindness that you would move powerfully among us. We feel distant from you. And yet the reality of it is, is you're never distant from us. Would you make that real to us this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yesterday, we decided to put up our Christmas decorations. I don't know about y'all, but after Thanksgiving on Saturday, we try and go get a tree. We try and take out all the ornaments, put up the lights. We had this wonderful day where we were all going to love each other really well and be kind and patient and humbly put up the Christmas decorations together. How do you think it went? It started with Connor taking one of the glass ornaments from the top of the stairs and lobbing it down to the bottom of the stairs where it exploded. Then we had people fighting over Siri and what Christmas songs that we were going to listen to. I've heard Last Christmas by Boy George or George Michael more than I could possibly handle for the rest of the season. And yet, we also had Christmas lights that needed to go up. The thing about our Christmas lights as we begin to untangle them and plug them into the wall is that when one of the lights goes out, it puts out another 11 or 12 of the lights on the same string, and somehow we managed with all of the strings that we had, to not have one string that was completely lit up. One little flaw ruins the whole thing. It's a picture of what's going on here, just the, the sprawling nature of the fall. One mistake, one little disobedience 
and it messes with everything else. There's this reaction where what should be bright is now dark. What should be joyful is now sad. And I tell you that because that's how we are. We try and fight our sin. We try and live as honest, godly people, but then we're ugly to others. We're dishonest. We don't treat each other as we should. We think that we're better than others. We judge them. We run off to lust or to envy or to covetousness to make sense of our lives. We never rest at all because we're trying so badly to keep up. And as these mistakes pile up, the lights start to go off and we just start to think, it's just going to be dark. I'm just going to be distant. And we sort of make peace with this notion that because we mess up, God is distant from us. And the Bible teaches us throughout that even though we make mistakes, the lights don't go out because of Jesus. That God draws near in His Son. That's what I want to draw your attention to this morning. That God made everything good and people without shame. That disobedience changed everything and that God still covered His people. So let's work through these things quickly together this morning. First of all, that God made everything good and people without shame. Did you hear it in the text? Genesis 1.31, this is the end of Genesis 1, where God has created all the world, all the galaxies. He's created the world, and God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. God speaks, and it happens, and it's good. You see, there's relationships with Adam and Eve together, and it's good relationships with Adam and Eve with God, and it's good. The creation, all of creation is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and it's good. God speaks, and it happens immediately, and it's good. And now Adam and Eve's job is to just obey the one rule and to make babies and fill the earth with God lovers. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And in 2.25, it says this. Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. The reason that we look at things before the fall is to understand what was lost in the fall. What they had before the fall is that the world as it should have been. That God says something and it actually happens. That people run towards God when they see Him near. That's what we were created for, not to run and hide from Him, but to run towards Him. That there would be nothing in between our most intimate relationships which would cause us shame and distance, that we were made for more, more closeness, not less. And you can see the beauty of this creation, that God knew what He was doing and it was good. And when Jesus comes again, He, he begins to start restarting Eden starts bringing healing to the broken. He starts bringing relationships to, the, to the, those that have been torn apart. And ultimately, what we'll see in the new heavens and the new earth is that it'll be good again. The relationships will be whole. There will be no shame. 
That means that there won't be distance between you and your spouse. There won't be distance between you and your families. There won't be anger aimed at your children. There won't be addictions that you have to run off to in order to function. Things will be good, very good, and it was designed that way. God knew what he was doing in creation. He knew what he was doing with Jesus, reorienting, reinitiating the new creation. And ultimately, when Jesus comes back and brings new creation to this place, there will no longer be tears or weeping or sorrow or pain or shame. The old order of things has passed away. The reason that we would even look at something way in the past of when it was really good isn't to say, man, that would have been nice. Man, we wish we could have been there. Man, we wish we had that kind of marriage. It's because that those days are coming again. And they're coming more full than you've ever imagined them, that your relationships won't have shame or covetousness or lust, that they'll be filled with life and it'll be good, very good. And when you're in the midst of a world like this, you need to remember not just the past that it was once good and that's how God designed it, but you need to remember and hold on to the fact in dark days, hold on to the light that it's coming again. Your mistakes are not the final word. Your broken relationships are not the final word. Your addictions are not the final word. God is coming to make all things new. The word that he used there is not new like all new, like innovation. He's going to make all things like brand new. It's a renewed new. It's a restored new. He's going to take what is broken and restore it. We should use that for a church name. Why we would look at the world before the fall is to remind ourselves that God knows what He's doing even when we disobey. It's to know that God knows what it's like to bring good and that He will do so again. This year we've lost a lot. With the pandemic, the loss of loved ones, the loss of being able to gather together in the ways that we normally do, we've lost a lot and it would be tempting to think we can't lose any more. There's a favorite hymn line that I love. It says, Jesus can repay with his own fullness all that he takes away. What that means is that as you experience the nearness of God and then you look back on your life, nothing will ever feel like a waste because it will all have been pointing you to a deeper experience of Jesus. That nothing was lost, nothing was wasted. No wound or no sin or no struggle. Nothing was wasted. And that you'll be made brand new. God made everything good and He made people without shame. But then they disobey and it changes everything. Listen to these words. It's from 3. Verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then both of the eyes were opened and they knew that they themselves were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God made everything good and then they disobeyed. They took the one rule and they're standing next to that tree. Imagine, they have all of the Garden of Eden to explore. And yet, our tendency is to get as close to trouble as we possibly can. And they're standing near a tree they know they shouldn't eat. 
And they're listening to a creature that they should instead be ruling over. And disobedience changed everything. And the lights went out. Sally Lloyd-Jones describes it this way in her Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted into the thicket as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. And they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid later that evening. You see, the disobedience changed everything. It changed their own relationship. They turn on each other and start blaming each other. It changes their relationship with God rather than hear him in the garden and run out to see him and say, God, we love you. We're so glad that you're here. Instead, they're hiding from God. It's ruined. It's ruined their relationship. It's ruined the land. It's been a nightmare. And that's what our shame does too. That's what our sin does too. It seems like just one small thing. We hear the devil whispering, the serpent whispering to us, just do this. Nobody's going to know. It's not that big a deal anyway. Just one small thing. Just give in. It's no big deal. Just do this. Are you sure this is even a sin anyway? And as he whispers to us and we give in to our sin, which we all have done, and give ourselves over to our shame, which means that we cover ourselves, we try and make amends on our own, it becomes evident to us that we can't hide. So some of us numb out so that we don't have to feel those feelings of feeling exposed. Some of us perform and try and achieve as much as we can to convince ourselves that maybe someday we'll be enough. Some of us work on our body to the degree that if we could just keep people's eyes focused on our bodies, then maybe they won't look and see what's in our hearts. All of us have a way of covering over our sin, covering over our shame that screams to us, you're not enough. It even ruins their own relationship. And you've felt sin and shame ruin your relationships too. The sin, just one seeming bulb is out and the rest of the lights go out too. One commentator said this, with an awareness of guilt and a loss of innocence, the couple now feels shame in their naked state. The spiritual death is revealed by their alienation from one another, symbolized by sewing fig leaves together for berries and by their separation from God, symbolized by hiding among the trees. Meaning they can't even look at each other because they've tur they'll turn on each other. And so they sew fig leaves together. They can't look at God, so they hide in the bushes. And that would be such a sad end to the story. That God called them to do one thing. He gave them this beautiful world, and they failed, and then they go off in hiding, and they have to keep their distance from God. But that's not how God handles his people, friends. And this is the gospel, and not the gospel waiting in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not the gospel waiting in the manger. This is Genesis 3, and we already see the God of grace on the move. They've just messed up. And what does he do? The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, 
Where are you? Where are you? What a searching question. In Voskamp and her devotional says this. When we've fallen and we're lost, God comes with one question. Not the question, why did you do that? Not the question, what did you do wrong? The very first God question of the Old Testament of the whole Bible is a love question howling out of the Father's heart. Where are you? Because of His unconditional, unbeatable, unfailing, unwrappable love, your God refuses to give up on you. Your God looks for you when you're lost. Your God calls out for you when you're ashamed and broken and hurting. God doesn't run down the rebel. God doesn't strike down the sinner. God doesn't flog the failure. Listen to this. Whenever you fall, whenever you fall short, wherever you sin, your God whispers to you with a love that wraps around you like a gentle arm, wherever you are, I will always come find you. Whatever you've done, I will always keep looking for you until my eyes see you, till my hands of healing reach you, till I can hold you close again to my heart. There's such beauty in those words because it models for us what is so hard to believe that when we fall in our failure and in our sin, when we become the worst versions of ourselves, that God moves towards us and not away from us. He comes for us and says, where are you? Where are you? That's a question of looking for someone, pursuing someone, not getting rid of them. Where are you? He comes to find them in their sin to help them deal with it. And again, we're not waiting on the Gospels. This is the God of grace in Genesis 3, already moving towards them in grace. In fact, he promises them a rescuer. That's what it mentioned in 3.15. I'll read it for you. I will put enmity between you and your offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's Genesis 3.15. The Bible's just getting going and it's already pointing to Jesus. Saying one of Eve's greater sons will be the one who destroys the serpent. But while he destroys the serpent, his heel will be struck and for him to win, he will have to suffer. For him to be the champion, he will have to die. And we're only two chapters into the Bible and they've already pointed us forward to Jesus. The rescue will come through suffering. So God comes out to meet them and finds them in their sin. God promises a rescuer that will ultimately be Jesus rescuing us from our sin, taking our sin on his record and giving us his perfect record. But then he does more than that. He covers them in their shame. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now imagine these shamed first parents of ours. They're standing there and they're not hugging. They're not arm around each other holding hands because they've just turned on each other. And they're awkwardly standing there in what says is loincloths before an almighty God who never makes mistakes. And they've just disobeyed the one thing that he asked of them. And God says, I will cover you. I will cover over your shame. I will help you to move forward. I will help you to move past this. He comes looking for them. He promises a rescue and he covers over their shame. God meets them in their sin. And then he goes with them. And this is our last point. God goes with them. The end of the text is hard. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man in the east, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So it sounds like we finally reached the point in the story where God does distance himself from them. Yes, he came and found them in the garden, and yes, he promised them a rescuer. And yes, he even kindly and gently clothes them in their shame so that they can continue to move forward. But then here it looks like this is where they've got to go. They've got to get out of my presence. I've cleaned you up, but I want you to get out of my presence. And ultimately, you and I feel that way sometimes. We're cleaned up, and yet we continue to make mistakes. And so, yes, we're clean, technically speaking, but we still got to get out of his presence. He'll forgive us, but he doesn't like us. That's what we feel. And yet, listen to this. This is it's the end of Genesis 3, right? The end of Genesis 3, the final verses. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 4? It's subtle, but I want you to see it. So God banishes them from the garden. And then Genesis 4, the next chapter in 4 through 6, it says, And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now without getting into the entire narrative of Cain and Abel, what I really want you to see is that in, Gen in Genesis 3, at the end of the chapter, it looks as if God is saying, you have to go. I've forgiven you, I've covered you, but you have to go. And then in Genesis 4, we see he goes with them. It's not this, get out and don't let me ever see your face again. It's this, you've got to go and I'm going to go with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to cover your shame. I'm going to deal with you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to shepherd you until Jesus finally comes and rescues you. I want you to see that because we sort of live in between that moment of, yes, we've been covered, but now we think he just wants distance from them and God goes with them. A great movie many years ago, The Last of the Mohicans. It's a story about the French and Indian War and Hawkeye. This one Indian who's been he's been adopted into the Indian family and he's been charged to protect these colonel's daughters. And he actually falls in love with the colonel's daughter. And there's this one scene where they're coming to kill Hawkeye and they're coming to kill the daughter. And for just a moment, they have a moment behind the waterfall. And Hawkeye is letting her know that no matter what happens, where they take her, he's going to come find her. He's going to rescue her because of his great love for her. And Hawkeye says this to her behind the waterfall. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. You stay alive. You're strong. You survive. You stay alive no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how far, I will find you. What we see in Genesis 3 already is a God who says, I will find you. You stay alive. I will do whatever it takes. I will find you. Even in your mess and in mine, my sin and your sin, my shame and your shame, God dwells with us. God says, I will find you. Let's pray.
Father, we tend to think that you'll forgive us, but you don't like us. That you've given us a new record, but you're not going to walk with us anymore. What a delight to see that as Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, that the God, Yahweh, is right there in Genesis 4. Help us to live like that. When we sin, help us to run towards you and not away. When we get lost, help us to experience your closeness, not your distance. Would you make it so? Pray that during this time, the holidays filled with loss and grief and disappointment and loneliness, that you would let your people experience the God who draws near. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.